but are, you know, maybe staying, you know, on someone's couch or, or moving around a lot, it's probably five times as high as this number. But this is the best data that we have. And it does allow us to track trends over time. We're basically tracking with the county trends overall for the coronavirus epidemic. Um, the numbers are about evenly split between um, people who are sheltered and people who are unsheltered. Um, as of last week, it hasn't changed that much this week. There have been about 20 outbreaks. Um, so that's defined as a single case in a, in a congregate setting, um, either or semi-congregate setting like an encampment or a congregate setting like a shelter site. The largest outbreaks have been um, at shelter sites, um, 13 cases um, at, uh, at one location that um, really was folks getting out of the criminal justice system, um, and seven cases at another site that was actually a youth location. More, most of our sort of HUD-funded um, kind of uh, traditional homeless shelters um, have not had large outbreaks. The largest outbreaks in those settings has been uh, you know, three or four cases, I think. Um, there have not been large outbreaks at any encampments that we're aware of yet. Um, we've really seen at most kind of two or three cases at a time. And I think, um, you know, that's attributable to this um, really, in part at least, to a really active response and a really proactive response um, led by the Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program with street outreach teams who are, you know, out in the community on a daily basis really um, doing surveillance for symptoms, figuring out what's going on in the community and offering testing um, on a follow-up basis really actively. Um, in some cases, those outbreak responses have led to kind of follow-up testing on a regular basis in some of the hardest-hit communities, so like around the high street area where there are a number of encampments, there's a safe RV parking site, um, there's, there's weekly testing that happens there. There have been a couple other locations where the county's established some weekly testing just to help us get a handle on some of the places where we're seeing more cases. But those, you know, even in those contexts, they've mostly been sporadic cases. We haven't really identified any enormous outbreaks like we've seen in, you know, in some other cities around the country. I mean, it's worth saying that I was just on a call with Margot Michelle, the national leader around homelessness, and she was saying that um, she thinks some of the best work in the country is happening in Alameda County around the response to the um, coronavirus pandemic. So when, when Margot Cruchelle says something like that, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, there's there's lots of stuff I'd love to go better, but um, it is helpful to kind of hear those those kinds of things every once in a while. I mean, you can go to the next slide. Um, so this slide just shows um, the um, distribution of COVID-related hotel and trailer sites. So again, these sites, if you look under, under target population, which is kind of toward the right side of the slide, some of the sites you'll see are for COVID positive patients or PUI, which means people under investigation. Um, those are our places where if we need to put someone in isolation because they're, they're sick with coronavirus or might be and we don't want them to spread it or in quarantine because they've been exposed to coronavirus, we want to see if they're going to develop symptoms. Those are sites for those folks. You can see those are actually um, 31%. We need to maintain, you know, a lot of capacity there just in case we have large outbreaks. There have been times um, in the past where we were at 90% occupancy for those sites. When we had that large outbreak, for example, of the uh, 13 people at one site, we essentially cleared out that shelter, moved everyone to um, these two sites, and um, and so we were up at 90% occupancy for a few days, and then gradually cleared back down and went down to 31%. So we have to maintain a lot of excess capacity in those sites um, for things like responding to outbreaks. Um, the other sites uh, you can see are called homeless high risk. And those sites are for folks who, if they were to get coronavirus, you know, have severe chronic illnesses. We talked a lot about that population at our last meeting. 
and you can see those are nearly fully occupied, um, you know, upwards of 90% at all the sites. You can also see we've started to develop a, a lot more sites countywide. I think we've been talking a lot about the safer ground site at the Radisson Hotel, um, which is the largest one still, but now we have sites in South County and Central County. Um, and then if you go to the next slide, you can see some of the sites that are in development, um, which are again across the county, including some scattered sites, which means just renting you know rooms here and there rather than putting people all in, in one location. The goal um, of the at the state level, they've set a goal of 15% uh, of patients or 15% of people experiencing homelessness. I have to look <laughs> back and forth in my lingo all the time. It's like always confusing: community residents, patients, people experiencing homelessness, personal homelessness, HUD homelessness. My denominators are always shifting. Um, so yeah, 15% of the point in time count HUD homeless population is what the state's goal is for um, developing housing. So here in Alameda County that's about 1,200 um, households that, um, and you can see that we're already at seven, eight, and, uh, and really have plans to get all the way up to the goal of 1,200 that are in place um, for, uh, for this type of housing. Next slide. So yeah, I think that's it for the coronavirus update. Maybe I'll just pause here for any questions about um, what's happening in the homeless response to coronavirus. It's really good to hear that Alameda is doing so well. Can you shed some light on what Alameda County is doing differently than other counties? I think um, uh, what I heard Margot say in the conversation that I was just on, uh, Dr. Cushel, was um, the um, the proactivity of being out in the um, in the encampment and out in the um, in the shelters to do prevention work, to do education work, has meant that the outbreak responses are more effective and that there is good prevention work going on. I think that's, that's really what's kind of drawn her attention to the response here. You know, she's like, you know, the, the county has actually split up the, the geography of Alameda County, had street outreach teams that are available, and I think other folks, including, you know, she was just describing responses in San Francisco where it's very reactive. They're sort of waiting for things to happen instead of being out in the streets going, what's going on? What do you know about what's happening? They're waiting to hear, we ha oh, someone found us that is positive, and by the time they get there, you know, there are larger outbreaks and, and more problems happening. So that's what she highlighted, and, and I think that's right. I think it's, I think it's part in part related to um, you know, the, the real decentralization of our county um, is, is oftentimes you know, a real challenge. We talk about that here um, all the time. But I think um, in this case, I think it's been, a, it's been um, helpful you know because we have just people that are in nooks and crannies kind of all over who have a little contract for this or a little contract for that and they all show up at these weekly meetings and get information about what's going on you know put the guidance in place around how to do prevention in their own settings and so i think um i think that you know fragmentation really it really means that we have kind of a, a diversity of providers and a diverse response that's been pretty resilient so far thank you All right, if no other questions, I'll move forward just to talking about the Alameda County budget update. I, I wanted to put this on the radar of the co-applicant board because, as I said, the, the county budget is so important um, for supporting people experiencing homelessness. It has really important locations for our work. And, um, and I think we're at a moment in history where um, lots of different things are being considered. So, you know, we have the city of Berkeley, the city of Oakland really 
considering plans to um, shift funding away from police departments, for example, toward more um, services and supports that, um, you know, absolutely would impact people experiencing homelessness. And um, in our case, I think one of the more relevant budgets to think about um, is the county budget. And so I just wanted to make sure that all of you were aware of what was happening and, uh, and you know, that we, could, that we could just have a conversation about the things that are impacting homelessness here in Alameda County. Um, so first, just, you know, I think I'm really proud of our response you know, to coronavirus, but I think it pales in comparison to what's gonna happen um, with homelessness in the next few years. Even, even if we're able to you know, make enormous shifts in budgets and policy, um, the reality of what's happened is, you know, unemployment rates have gone from 4% to 14% in Alameda County. Um, across California, 40% of renter households have lost one income among the people who live in the household. And most people, you know, choose the amount of rent they're going to pay on the basis of how many incomes they have. And so if you've lost one of two incomes or one of one income or one of a few incomes in a renter household, the likelihood you're going to have a challenge paying rent is enormous. And, you know, we currently have eviction moratoriums in some cities in Alameda County. In our biggest city, Oakland, we do. But other cities, we don't have eviction moratoriums. And um, they're set to expire. And um, I think, you know, there's there's an onslaught of um, really big problems coming at us from the rental market um, that we need to be aware of. Um, other data suggest really serious increases in food insecurity, in intimate partner violence, in mental illness. Um, and certainly in, in gun violence and homicides as well, which I didn't include on the, side, on the slide. Um, so, you know, all of these things, I think, driven by the, the disruption of coronavirus. Next slide. So, I, you know, I've already made this point. The county is the core safety net for people at risk for homelessness or people who are experiencing homelessness. The public assistance budget of the county includes the CalWORKS program, the CalFresh program, child welfare, emergency food and shelter, you know, that's just a few examples of the things that our patient population depend on. Um, the healthcare budget of the county, of course, includes um, behavioral health um, for the entire indigent and Medi-Cal population, uh, public health, and um, the indigent healthcare budget, the health pack budget, which pays, um, you know, for primary care and medications and other really critical services for people who are uninsured and, um, and below 200% of federal poverty level here in Alameda County. Um, of course, there are other critical county programs, most especially rental assistance, and, uh, rental assistance and affordable housing development that people experiencing homelessness depend on. And I think you know all of us understand that even in good times, these programs are dramatically inadequate for the problems that uh, that our patient population faces. Next slide. So, um, so in the in the context of that, um, really the county budget process. Um, has continued to move forward on the, on the basis of a principle called maintenance of effort, which is that the, the first part of the budget process every year is how do we maintain the, the effort that, um, that we put in last year. And I think that's in the face of, um, you know, these dramatic increases in needs that we know are coming at us. So you can see the, um, the maintenance of effort budget um, and the proposed budgets for 2020, 2020 to 21 are very close to the, um, the budgets uh, for fiscal, you know, 2019, 2020. Um, so we, you know, we have uh, basically an overall you know, appropriation of around three and a half uh, billion dollars, which is about the same as what we had last year. Even though we know needs for public assistance, needs for health pack, 
needs for rental assistance are kind of go through the roof. Next slide. So there, there are two additional phases um, of the budget process to come, but neither of those phases really factors in an increase in the need. So we, we never really factor in like what's happening with the service needs of the population. The next phase is really in process right now and due to be complete, which is adjustments to the budget that are based on the state budget process. And then the final phase will be sort of, you know, a reconciliation with, you know, whatever Congress does over the rest of the summer, whatever the, the state does in order to um, make additional revisions to programs based on what the federal government does. But we've now basically been able to align mostly with the, with the state budget. Um, what we can see ahead, next slide, on the basis of those adjustments, is um, the county administrators projected a 15% decline in discretionary funding. So that means, you know, a lot of portions of that $3.5 billion budget are going to get chopped down again on the basis of the state budget. So we won't even be maintaining our effort. We'll be some, doing something less than maintaining our effort. And then we're likely to have additional trigger cuts in these really critical programs in home support services, CalWORKs, um, public health, and Medi-Cal, you know, were cited in, in the county administrator budget report as areas that are likely to have trigger cuts on the basis of what happens at the state level. Um, so next slide. Um, so this just summarizes some of the questions that are facing us in the Homeless Health Center here. Um, given the dramatically increased needs that we know are coming, um, how will this affect the number of people experiencing homelessness that we're supposed to serve? You know, I think California is one of the states that's um, experienced the largest number of newly uninsured people um, already. Uh, just a report that came out in the last couple of days. In Alameda County, how many people is that going to be? Um, and how many of those folks are going to, you know, also have voting um, disability and homelessness? Um, what's going to happen with chronic illness and disability? We've already seen a bit Part of this population. Um, these are, you know, really, really big shifts that are coming our way, and a lot of, you know, my time at least is spent kind of in the weeds of responding to coronavirus or these clinical operations things. But I think these issues happening in the outside world they really threaten to kind of overwhelm um, the type of work we're doing unless we're able to zoom out and, and really, really think critically about. What, what kind of shifts are happening at, you know, across the board in our society. And then I think the second question is, all, are there alternative budget scenarios that we still have time to consider, um, such as increased reserve spending that could maintain higher levels of support for people who are at risk of or experiencing homelessness? So the county has an enormous reserve. Our bond rating is a triple A bond rating. Um, the rating agencies like us um, are, you know, I, I'm not sure there's been um, a lot of discussion about the importance of our bond rating relative to the importance of these needs that are coming at us, um, or a lot of public discussion about that. And, um, you know, I certainly think that, um, that our public commissions like this commission should be aware of and should be, you know, able to ask questions and able to have an understanding of, are there, are there alternatives? Are there things that we've considered? What are the creative ways that, you know, that we can think about trying to meet at least part of the needs that we think are, are coming at us? Um, so that's the end of this um, part of the presentation. I'm happy to take questions about this area, and then um, after that, we'll turn it over to Patricia and uh, and Harry. I have a question. I have a question for Dr. Francis. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Please go ahead. Okay, my question is: Do you get involved with people with spousal abuse and violence in the camps? 
or do they just call the police? We, we clinically, um, our mobile health program does not do much work in encampments. We do, um, we do some work at drop-in centers and at shelters, and every once in a while we do come into contact with um, cases of intimate partner violence uh, in those areas. Uh, there's, there's a lot more that happens among the street health teams, which the county um, contracts for, and um, which Alameda Health System doesn't directly provide. Um, so there's, you know, in those contexts, they deal a lot more with that issue, yes. I see, thank you. Do we have a sense of what the projected shortfall will be in the need versus what our budget is going to be for the next year? I think if you go back one slide, um, or back and set it forward. Um, so, sorry, one more slide forward. The, the one that has a 15% on it. One more forward. No, uh, <laughs> forward now. Slide. There we go. Yep. 22, yeah. Um, so slide 22. Page 22. Perfect. Um, so I think it's, it falls in these two buckets. Um, one is the discretionary budget, you know, which is based primarily on sales tax revenue from the state as well as um, property tax and and um, they're projecting a 15% decline in that. And then there's additional cuts that really depend on state policy where there's formulas for particular areas like CalWORKs or IHSF where the budget's calculated at the state level and then the county is a percentage of that. And so um, these are kind of the two general areas to pay attention to. It wasn't clear reading the county administrator budget to me um, which things fell in which category and sort of what the overall size would be. Um, but certainly, you know, it's, it's at least in some areas, a 15% cut. And then in, in other areas, you know, I think you've heard probably on the news what the, the state level cut, you know, that, that Governor Newsom has talked about needing to face because of the lack of, of support from the federal level. So um, they're, you know, they're on the order of, I think, that 15% probably across the board would be my guess. Um, but I don't know the exact numbers. I see. So this is the cut that we are projecting. Um, but what is the, the the increase in need that do we have a sense of what the increase in need will be? There's been no process to calculate that. And that's one thing that I'm that I'm trying to highlight for you all is that basically the process began with what did we spend last year? We know the needs of the population of Alameda County residents are going to be entirely different next year than they were last year. Everything in all of our lives has changed completely as a result of coronavirus. The budget process said, let's do the same budget process we've done, and then let's cut from there. Um, so that, that's the major message that I wanted to give to you all as a public board, that like this is what our public process is doing. Um, and, you know, I certainly think... I, I'm not an expert on finances. I don't know how important our AAA bond rating is, but from a health perspective, I think this is potentially catastrophic. Um, and so, you know, I did want to raise it, you know, to you all to, to, to think about, is there something else we should be doing? Is there some other way we should be trying to participate in this process? Hi, I just wanted to check in. I've got call-in user one with a raised hand. Go ahead, call-in user one. Yeah, hi, this is Mark, Mark Smith. Um, one question about the budget that I was uh, thinking about was, um, first of all, I mean, 
we don't know exactly what um, the future is going to hold, but it's quite clear to me that COVID-19 has changed everything. And I think that um, based on that and, and based on the fact that, uh, quite frankly, I don't think we're going to get back to any so-called normal. There might be a new normal, but it certainly won't look like it did a year ago or two. And based on that, I think that um, projections about uh, about budget funding should be uh, as generous and as open as possible. Because quite frankly, I think uh, going forward, my personal fear is that we're going to be underfunded uh, a year from now, not, uh, not more so. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Yeah, I just want to, I, I, I did want to say too that uh, uh, because of that, I think we ought to, uh, uh, we certainly should uh, keep that in mind and try to stress that going forward uh, to anybody who has any power, budgetary power, which I guess would be the board of trustees. Uh, I think we should known to them that um, that going forward, that that's our summation, is that we're, it's going to require more funding uh, and that... Um, and that we uh, ask for where we can ask um, uh, in the next fiscal year in order to make that happen. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Yeah, I certainly would love to know if there's anything we can do, you know, as the staff to the board to support um, those kinds of requests. I think that, that um, those might potentially be helpful um, in, in this process. And um, that's one of the reasons that, you know, I presented these to you. I thought you all might want to consider doing things like that, you know, communicating to our board of trustees, to the board of supervisors, to other folks around um, what the impacts of these might be. And so, um, you know, certainly, you know, Heather and I um, and, you know, and our team would be interested in doing whatever we can to support to support that if you all um, want to take something like that on well i'm certainly interested in doing it um it's just a matter of whether or not and how um the rest of the members of the board feel and uh and that we have um that we uh, have act as it were that we support each other uh we, we pick a strategy or strategies to address that and that we um all support that and do whatever we can to um push that going forward. That's that's um, that's gonna be important. There's not one person's gonna be able to do it alone. Uh, not uh, not four people from the board, not people occasionally and then five people maybe once in a while. It's gonna take a it's gonna take a full on uh, full, uh, everybody on deck effort, I think, uh, to make uh, to push that and to make sure that uh, at least some of it on all uh, our beliefs regarding budget of the future uh, be adopted, if not entirely, certainly, uh, uh, certainly most of it uh, be adopted uh, going forward because uh, it's going to be needed. Damien, um, do we know if there's other counties or like what are what are other models that are being considered other places? Um, or do we know, do we have any sense of that? 
I don't have any sense of that. I think that's a great question um, that, you know, potentially um, other, other, you know, members of Alameda Health System might be working on. Um, that, you know, we could try to try to ask and, and provide that information to you all. I think anything that we can communicate to to either maintain or increase funding for healthcare for homeless in Alameda, we'd be supportive. So if there's anything that we can do, including communicating with the board of trustees, I think the, the board would be in support of that. Are you thinking in terms of writing a letter or what? How are you planning to execute your plan? Or any plan that would help us get more money? My plan was really to update you on on what's happening and to support the actions of the board. Um, I think, you know, as a staff member for Healthcare for the Homeless, um, we're waiting to see, you know, what the impacts will be on our budget. Our federal grant so far has been augmented from HRSA, so our program in particular, um, you know, that, that Heather and I are responsible for administering um, is not specifically at risk, it's our patients who are at risk uh, right. much more. And so, um, you know, it, it, it really is, I think, um, this really was intended to give you all an update about what's happening and then to support efforts that are led by the board should you, should you choose to kind of undertake those. Um, I think uh, from our perspective, you know, I'm communicating wherever I can. These are the health impacts that are likely to happen. Um, but, you know, I think uh, within the, this is the, this is the major avenue I have to communicate that these are the health impacts that are likely to happen and they're really scary. Yeah, I, I agree. I understand that. I guess what I'm really asking is, Mark, do you have any suggestions as to what we could do or you would like to see us execute? That was Mark that asked, that made the statement, right? Not you, Dr. Francis, but Mark. Can you hear me? Mark? Yeah, I'm sorry, I was muted. Um, I, yeah, I can hear you. Um, it's a good question. Um, I'm not sure what, um, I'm not sure what the answer is right now. Uh, to be honest, uh, except um, one of the things I did, I have suggested um, for a different reason, um, but can be used for this reason, um, that um, maybe that we uh, possibly, um, I mentioned ahead of the possibility uh, that maybe we can sometimes occasionally, maybe on an annual basis, uh, which could come around the time of budgetary questions, uh, or uh, if not once, maybe twice, um, having a direct meeting uh, with a specific agenda for the year uh, in which we get a chance to basically let, um, let our feelings be known, our, our, our certain um, beliefs and positions on certain matters that um, might come up on an annual basis, um, and that we talk directly to uh, the board trustees, and that we have a set-aside uh, time and date in which we would um, uh, maybe even around the budgetary issue that we would at least meet once or twice a year um, that we can directly address um, uh, the trustees themselves. Um, it, 
it is one forum in which, uh, of course, they make budgetary decisions. So it makes sense that um, we could formulate going forward um, over time. We could formulate um, places we think that um, that that we have concerns about in terms of overall funding, and possibly take it directly to them. Uh, as a body or, or appoint representatives uh, from the body to actually address uh, the Board of Trustees on the very issues um, we're talking about. Hey, this uh, is does that make sense? Yes. Yes, um, I will just note that the Board of Trustees is meeting on July 24th and will be talking about the budget. It is also their retreat day and they have public comment. Uh, during that all of their meetings and so an opportunity could be making public comment um, I also want to notice that Loretta has her hand up so Loretta yes thank you I have a question um, are the homeless uh, being covered through health pack or through Medi-Cal or both yes <laughs> um, there's a, a good portion of our population is covered by Medi-Cal a good portion by health pack and we do even have a scattered few um medicare and even privately insured patients sometimes um but but the bulk of patients are are medi-cal the next highest is health pack and then much lower um medicare or private insurance. right and where does the funding come from health pack does it come from the county or the state health pack is um it is a combination of state and county funding um, that includes, I believe, vehicle license fees and some of the sales tax-based dollars. Uh, I, I, I can't remember the exact sources that come from the state, and then the county adds uh, additional sources of revenue to that. So we are looking at, at great financial cuts in that program as well, correct? Um, it's not clear. It's, uh, it's not clear yet from the process. Uh, the, the only process, part of the budget process that we've been through so far is the maintenance of effort process, which looks like um, we're maintaining the same, the same amount of funding that we had last year um, for, for, uh, for programs. So we haven't yet gotten to the place uh, where, um, where we know exactly what's going to happen. It's possible that that 15% you know, cut in discretionary funding that the county administrator referred to is going to affect health pack. Right, right. Okay, thank you. Go ahead, Mark. Mark, you might be on mute. And after Mark will be Neha. Hey, hey, Mark, we still don't hear you. I think you're on mute. Yes, we hear you now. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Um, yes, Heather. Um, one question. Um, did you say that the, the budget meeting uh, with the uh, Board of Trustees is on the 24th of this month in 10 days? Correct. Okay. Um, and that budget, um, is it, uh, will actual, um, will actual uh, final vote be taken at that point in time to finalize the budget going forward? Or is it strictly a, 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 um, just the beginning of a budget?
uh, one of many budget meetings to occur before budget is actually voted on, or is this it? I think that they're working Hello? with an. Go ahead. Heather, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Thanks. Hi, hi, it's Mike Moy. So, just an answer to that question. So, the meeting on the twenty fourth, the board of trustees will be uh, considering and approving an interim budget. Uh, the process this year, typically, the you know the uh, board of trustees approves a budget, you know, by July first, because of all the uncertainty and some issues that are being uh, resolved. The plan at this point is that an interim budget will be passed uh, or approved by the board at this meeting. That interim budget will probably carry the organization uh, into uh, September, at which point we're anticipating that perhaps there'll be some additional clarity around some of uh, the uncertainties uh, regarding uh, funding and potential funding sources. And if possible at that point, uh, the budget for the entire year would be finalized is um, similar to what Damon had uh, explained. Uh, the interim budget sort of maintains a status quo uh, as much as possible um, based upon you know the information that we have. And then if any significant changes need to be made from that, that be occurring you know, probably in the September timeframe. Okay, um, that, that's good to know. Um, I, I, I guess one other question I would have is, um, so it's an interim budget basically to operate, um, but um, is there a possible way to, is there, well, here's what I'd like to do. Um, because it's only an interim budget, I, I'd like to ask um, if it's possible, not on the 24th of this month, um, because I don't think that I don't think this I don't think this, uh, there's a need for us to 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 involve ourselves in the interim budget being passed in ten days. But what I would like to know is if there's a possibility uh, that we could uh, at least make concerns known to the uh, board of trustees regarding uh, the overall budget going forward. If if we as a body can identify uh, areas as a group. Um, of, of, of specific concerns. Well, you know, uh, again, one of the things I would uh, point out is that uh, there typically is a report to the board uh, at uh, its meetings on a regular basis of the activity undertaken by this board. And, you know, uh, we can certainly work to ensure that the report from this board that would be part of the uh, materials for the July 24th meeting uh, can capture some of the uh, concerns expressed in this conversation and include those in the report. And then as Heather mentioned, you know, there is the opportunity to um, you know, provide public comment at any of the meetings, you know, where these matters are being discussed, either at the finance committee, which typically meets the uh, first uh, Thursday, or excuse me, the second Thursday of the month, uh, or the board meeting, which is just typically the fourth uh, Thursday of the month. Okay. Um, thank you. Neha? I want to make sure we give um, Patricia and uh, and Eric some time to present to you, and I'm conscious of this being a, an update and a really important update, too, but I just wanted to make sure that we, um, we know that we have some guests that are waiting to present as well. Heather, do you want me to wait till after then? I can, no, I can you can skip it. 
you can go ahead and then I think we'll move on at that point. Sound good? Sounds good to me. Um, I was just going to ask if it is possible for us to ask the staff to put together maybe a, like a short memo or that detailed some of the work that's happening in some of the other counties because we're not the only county that's experiencing this and some of the ways that they are trying to address the issues that are arising because of the budget shortfalls that are coming up. Yeah, I'm happy to spend some time looking and, you know, finding what I can find uh, on that. And, uh, and you know, grateful that you, got, that you all are interested and find this issue as important as, uh, as I do. Um, I think our, you know, our board of trustees, most likely, I haven't been following their conversations, but I think is every bit as concerned as this board is. And um, I'm sure other groups like the Measure A board and the, you know, First Five Commission and uh, other folks are uh, equally concerned about the populations that they're responsible for, you know, for caring for the health of. And so um, I think everything we can do, you know, that's why I just wanted to share information about the process. And so I'll definitely, um, work on something for you all um, along with Heather and get you the best I can get. You know, as I said, I, I think about these things from a health perspective. And so I can tell you like this bodes ill for <laughs> homelessness and health issues and mental illness and stuff. I, the financial side is, you know, um, the, the, the more detailed it gets, the harder it is for me to grasp, but um, I'll do my best. It sounds great. Yeah. And then we can come up with a, a longer term plan. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much. We're going to move on. I do want to acknowledge that um, Richard has joined the meeting. Thanks for being here, Richard Hervey. Um, and we're going to move on to Patricia Fu. And um, Mark, I do notice your hand up, but we're going, to, we're going to hold that until the end so we can move forward with our presentation. Thank you. Do you want to share your screen or I'm not quite sure how we're doing the presentation. Yeah, I'll go ahead and take control if that's all right. Great. And maybe while you're doing that, um, we can just start with introductions. Um, so thank you all for um, having us here and inviting Eric and myself to come and chat. Um, I hope this ends up being informative for you all. It is certainly um, a huge opportunity for us to learn from you. And thanks to Damon for inviting us. Um, so just by way of introduction, so um, as Damon said, I'm a primary care physician at Highland in the adult medicine clinic. Um, I am pretty new to the East Bay in general and to AHS. I just started here in October, so um, I have a lot to learn. Um, and I'm working on some efforts around health equity, and we'll be talking about one of them in particular today. I think our goal is to really provide you with whatever information we can provide based on our experiences and our knowledge, and then really to um, hopefully get some of your expertise and insight about like how we can do this work better. Um, so Eric, if you want to introduce yourself and then you can get us started. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um... My name is Eric Mahone. I'm a pharmacist by training, and I um, part of the ambulatory system leadership uh, committee for for HS. Um, and my work with health equity. Well, I've been at, I've been at HS for about ten years now. Um, I used to uh, see a lot of patients in our chronic disease management clinics of different kinds, and. Um, now most of my work with 
um, reducing health and equity at AHS is um, around managing some of our um, programs that um, help patients with chronic diseases, um, such as diabetes, hypertension, um, and heart failure. So um, I have, um, you know, we have some slides to present about um, what sort of the current initiatives are, and I'll, I'll go into um, the initiative about diabetes that I'm uh, most closely involved with and give a little bit of data about that. We have a lot of other data on all of these initiatives that we can share in the future, but we wanted to present as little as possible, so like Patricia said, so that we can have time to talk with you um, and get input from you all. I think that's the, the key takeaway is we're, we're very interested to hear anything that you have to say, but we wanted to provide some information for you. So within our clinics, within the ambulatory departments at AHS, um, we are still, you know, I, I would not say that we have a well-developed health equity program, but we have been making strides and we're trying to um, improve all the time. And so, you know, I, I just want to share a couple things that we're doing um, that we're proud of and um, again, to hear from you. So the, the first thing we've been working on for a little over two years is um, a program called Chronic Care. Uh, which I'm involved with, and for that program has existed for a while, but for a little over two years, um, we've been focusing some of our work on diabetes control in African Americans, and um, a majority of that work has been around telephone outreach to patients um, who are maybe not engaged in care or um, needing some additional help with their diabetes. Um, We've also partnered with some health plans for other things, but there's too many individual uh, things to mention. So uh, I'll go ahead to the next item, which is our Black Centering Program. Um, it's part of the Women's Clinic at Highland and Eastmont, potentially. And um, it is, uh, it's group perinatal care for, for mothers and babies uh, by, for, and with black people. Um, there's lots of information we can share about that as well, but, um, if, if you're all interested. Um, there's a whole other presentation on that that I can share um, as well. And then um, we, we do have a work group um, to address how we, we document race and ethnicity in our medical record at AHS. Um, we have a new electronic medical record as of October 1st, 2019. And um, we recognize that how we ask our patients about race and how we document race in our medical record is um, sometimes inconsistent and leads to small but significant um, challenges for those of us who are trying to improve health equity um, when we can't get good data on uh, our patients. So um, those are three main um, initiatives that um, I can share. There are also other several department and clinic level collaborations with um, community resources and um, you know, some clinics have done um, health disparity training within their staff, but these are um, too, too many to list, but small, um, small in scope. Um, so I, I'll try to get you know, through this as quickly as possible. I don't want to talk too much about diabetes, but um, you know, the first initiative that we talked about for reducing health inequity um, revolves around diabetes control in African-Americans. And so I think we're all on the same page about this, but I just wanted to sort of set the tone and that 
um, you know, little, provide a little bit of data about the problem of diabetes and race in America and within Alameda County. So the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services um, has uh, provides you know, yearly data on um, chronic diseases, and African-American adults are at least 60% more likely to develop diabetes than non-Hispanic whites. African-American adults are also twice as likely to die from diabetes than non-Hispanic whites. So we, this is well documented over um, decades that the, there is a, a national problem. Um, but within Alameda County, um, we also see the same, the same data. So there, the study has nothing to do with AHS or, um, or, or the county, but there was a study done from 1965 to 1999 where they, they followed 5,422 adult residents of Alameda County. And they found that the black residents of Alameda County were almost exactly twice as likely to develop diabetes um, even when accounting for other factors. So, um, you know, we know that this is a national problem. We know that this is a local problem. And so one of the other things I was asked to present on is just a, a, what data, you know, a little snippet of what we have about data and race uh, when it comes to diabetes at HS. And even though we've been doing work on diabetes control in the African-American population at, at Alameda Health System, um, you know, this, this uh, graph actually shows a little bit about the overall control. So the number we're looking at for each um, racial group is the A1C control. So A1C is your average blood sugar over a certain period of time. And it's sort of the marker that we use to tell how well people are doing with their diabetes. So a higher number is worse, a lower number is better when you have diabetes. Um, and so you, you can see that um, there actually isn't a large difference for African-Americans within AHS um, simply by the, the diabetes control numbers. Um, certainly, um, you know, we, we do see higher rates. Uh, I mean, we do see higher um, A1C on average than other racial groups, but the disparity is not actually within your, your control of diabetes. Um, it is within um, another factor, which um, I'd like to share a little bit of data. So in looking here at this slide, it's kind of small, and I, I apologize, but I'll, I'll try to stick to the highlights. So on the left, we have the, the total county population. So this is the residents of Alameda County. 10% um, identify as African-American or black. Um, within AHS, so this is everyone who has a medical record at AHS. Um, African-Americans represent 27% of the population. And when you look at diabetes, um, you know, the, the, of our diabetics in our system, 28% um, or a little bit around there of our diabetics at AHS are African-American. So um, the, the disparity for, for me and um, what the data shows is, again, not so much that we have worse control in um, any particular group, but that African-Americans have the largest disproportion. So of the county population, they represent um, a much larger percentage of, of our patients and a much larger percentage of our diabetics compared to any other racial group. And that's where um, the decision was made to, to focus on African-Americans and diabetes uh, control. 
There's a lot of other data from other sources about chronic disease management for, um, for African-Americans and for, for other folks at AHS. Um, but I just wanted to present this as an example of what data we have and um, how we um, look at race um, in our patients and try to design something based on the data that we have. And so I'm happy to share more about what our diabetes programs consist of, but um, wanted to give us more time for dialogue. So um, Patricia, back, back to you. Yeah, so um, I'm just gonna be very brief in terms of you know where we are right now and what we're thinking. You know, as Eric mentioned, there have been various um, different efforts in this area for some time. Um, but since I joined in October, you know, there's definitely been a delay with COVID. Um, we've been trying to sort of rethink and reframe how we're approaching this. And so I think, you know, what we have sent, what we have um, coalesced around is a few principles about how we want to approach this work. And I think, um, you know, we really want to um, really explicitly understand and address racism. I think, um, you know, we all know that racism is an issue and but I don't think we necessarily in healthcare always talk about racism and what it looks like and and ensure that we're all um, sort of talking about the same thing so we want to really um, understand as a um, community um, what that racism is an underlying driver of these disparities um, and be able to center that in some of the work we do we want to make sure that we develop community accountability and partnerships, which is why we were really um, thrilled to be invited here today. Um, we want to really focus on lifting up the wisdom, experience, and leadership in the community itself as part of our work with the community. And I think, you know, overall, um, I personally like this idea of designing for the margin, which is that, you know, I think we all want to have better health for ourselves, for our families, for our community. And um, sometimes when we design uh, interventions that are effective for the most difficult to reach person or patient, then that tends to actually improve everyone's health. And so I think that's sort of the principle we're trying to use in figuring out um, what we're doing and how we're doing it. Um, so you can go to the next slide, Eric. So, um, uh, this is just a very broad overview because uh, we are still in the process of designing exactly what all of our intervention will look like. We don't have it all mapped out yet and we're hoping to get lots of input. Um, where we've decided to start and what um, is already in process is doing some internal training and reflection. So among the folks who are part of the diabetes care teams, um, doing a lot of um, reflective trainings around definitions of um, racism, sort of getting everyone on the same page, making sure that everybody has a good understanding of um, the history of racism in medicine, which you know we know contributes a lot to um, different community and individual patient um, perspectives about medical care and medical systems. And we also wanna make sure that it's a space for some acknowledgement of, of trauma that happens to individual people and to communities and to create a space for healing. So we think that's important internally as a team if we wanna really move this work forward. Um, after sort of completing our, our training of our own um, staff and our own community internally, then we're gonna to move to um, delivering, or sort of somewhat concurrently delivering our interventions into the community. Eric mentioned some of the really amazing work that is um, being launched, I think, sort of in this moment around black centering within perinatal care. Um, and I think we've taken a lot of inspiration from that model. 
Um, so we're thinking about, you know, what sort of group care models can we use and how can we um, incorporate similar principles as are used in the Black Centering Group. And, um, you know, I think Eric mentioned that um, there have been prior outreach efforts to re-engage patients in care. I think this is something that we've definitely seen among our um, uh, Black patients with diabetes that, you know, there tends to be um, less engagement sometimes over time. And so really trying to figure out creatively how do we um, engage with our patients and, and um, you know, uh, create a space that um, it works for them and that engages them in their care. And then of course, um, down the line, we'll hopefully see what our effects are, uh, both in terms of our clinical outcomes, but I think more importantly, in terms of some of the patient and uh, community feedback we get. And throughout this whole process, we're really hoping to create a robust system for input and accountability, because I think um, you know that is a big part of, of creating something that will be effective and lasting. Um, and so that's, that's sort of a big picture of what we're doing. This is all that we have um, prepared to present. And with that, I think I'll open it up for comments, questions, any other reflections that folks have to share. presentation it's exciting to, to see uh, work on health equity that's being done uh, I have the, it's really good to see also the, the focus on um, African-American population because uh, you know it is it is a very big group that is uh, seeing adverse health outcomes I'm also concerned about the Hispanic population and it, it, looking at your own graphs the numbers are very high even for the Hispanic population. You know, they were looking at that. They're twenty three percent of the population in the county, and then forty percent, uh, almost forty percent uh, for the diabetes diagnosis. So, so that's that's not low um, either. And uh, you know, in the previous slide as well, they are actually higher in the Latin diabetes A one C control compared to the African American. Population. So I'm wondering if you're also working with the Hispanic population and, and doing diabetes control and other work in that population. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. Yeah, I mean you're you're exactly right that the the numbers are um, pretty striking uh, for for that group as well. And so um, the well. The only, what we have done within the diabetes management program is to um, ensure that we have um, bilingual providers for the staff um, as much as possible. And um, while we have yet to develop any sort of system-wide or population health approach for our Hispanic population, certainly within the day-to-day, -day, we're, we're mindful of that. and. Um, that it, it is um, obviously still, um, you know, something that puts you at higher risk for, for worse outcomes. And, and so while we, we have fewer plans probably on a, a larger scale to address it at this time, as, as you pointed out, um, we, we do try to address it in um, how we, we staff and how we um, do our day-to-day -day operations at clinic. Uh, and 
one of the things that has come out of COVID, of course, is telephone visits and um, uh, video visits that our staff can carry out um, has been um, very effective across across the board, um, but especially our people who um, are working during the day, you know, we found it to be um, extremely helpful um, to have to have telemedicine as well. But your point is well taken, and that you know it, there is still quite a, a disparity there that um, we may not be as directly um, addressing in, in, in what we're, we're talking about. for doing um, the bulletin boards in the clinic with information for um, the patients in different languages and so on and so forth over the last, I would say, maybe four years. And um, one request has been from um, the providers there that they, they do want more information in Spanish put up about diabetes and about blood pressure and you know certain topics, whatever uh, the, the topic or the, the main um, goal is for the month that they want to reach out and address the community with that's what I've been trying to do and um, I think it's been pretty successful um, I know we also do a lot of stuff on the outreaches whenever there's like for example the Dia de los Muertos um, outreach we did a lot of um, diabetes testing there right on site and um, just things like that so there is stuff happening within the community I just think that um, Right now, the emphasis is more on the black issues, and uh, possibly that's why we're concentrating on that right now. But I know for, for quite a while we have been working in the Hispanic population as well. Yeah, thank, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and I can um, I, I can definitely bring that that feedback about having those those supplies, you know, having the educational materials in our clinic has been um, helpful. I can definitely do what I can to, to encourage that and support that across the system. Thank you. Right. A lot of the information that I um, get are from this, the CDC, and uh, there it's in multiple languages. And so I, you know, I try to get as much as I can. It's not always available in Spanish, but I mean, that's one of my constant. Um, goals is to get as much information as I can on every type of um, illness, chronic illness, and uh, presented in different languages. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you for the, the feedback and, and your support as well. Niha, uh, go ahead. Thanks. Um, I, I'm just curious as to why there isn't a similar push in uh, in the in the same concerted effort for um, the for the Hispanic Latinx population as there is for the African American Black population. It's just a matter of budgeting, or you're, they're just we're sort of trying to address it in a serial manner, one at a time. Thanks.
Um, Patricia, um, do you want to take a stab at that? Oh. Or do you want me to? Uh, you probably have more information than I do. So, um, you know, part of why this is sort of baked in and why there is um, some infrastructure to support this moving forward is that this was the metric that was chosen as part of the um, the Prime and Quip uh, quality programs, which um, Eric, you probably have more information on. But, but essentially, um, as you all may know, it these are the measures that are part of our um, Medicaid waiver, I think I got that right. Um, and we have uh, certain responsibilities to report on how we're doing. And so for there was one sort of health equity measure that was required to be chosen. And um, the organization chose um, diabetes outcomes for our black and African American population. So that is in large part, I think why we've moved forward first on this. But, um, you know, I think I think the answer overall is sort of like yes and I think like we definitely need to do more for all of our communities of color um, I think you know what we know in terms of how structural racism works in this country and I think what has been you know very um, obvious in recent news is you know the, the that for that there are many challenges for all communities of color and historically in our country, it has been the hardest for Black and African Americans. Um, and so I think, you know, with a similar framing in mind, I, I assume that's partly why this metric was chosen the way it was, although I wasn't here when that decision was made. And I think as we're designing this, I think, you know, we are designing it currently for our Black and African American patients. And I think what we learn and what we design will probably help inform us as we create additional programming with the goal of really improving everyone's diabetes care in the end. Thanks, Dr. Yeah, certainly from the from my perspective within you know healthcare for the homeless, I think um, while if we start with a universe of diabetics and say where do we focus, it may not make sense to actually pick um, a subpopulation that is African American. If you zoom out the umbrella and say, we're doing a Medi-Cal quality improvement program, um, then I think it certainly actually makes sense across a number of indicators um, to do that. And I, I wasn't here when the decision was made either, but I think um, the idea of picking an initiative that centers blackness and picking an initiative that centers diabetes, you know, which is so common, um, makes sense as a place to start developing our infrastructure for doing things like saying, how do we intentionally bring community accountability? How do we intentionally design from the margins? How do we intentionally you know, use data in these ways? Um, so I, I, I agree with you, Patricia, that there's, even though I wasn't around as the decisions were made, there's a lot of, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense to me actually that, that this would be a focus area to begin with. Uh, you know, I think, um, you know, in response to your feedback, I think it would be great if a year from now we came back and said you know this is everything we've done and this is what we've learned and this is how we've applied it to different communities of color and you know this is how we've improved everyone's identity. so i think that's certainly our our end goal and um you know hopefully we'll get there Well, I really want to thank uh, Eric and Patricia for coming to present. Um, if I know one of the things that um, that uh, Patricia's reached out to me about is 
making connections to community organizations that may be interested in participating. Um, and so certainly if any of you have ideas, um, please send those to me and Heather and, and we can make connections. I know, you know, all of you do a lot of work um, in other contexts and may have, uh, you know, some of that wisdom and leadership and experience that, um, that we need to center in, in the intervention. So um, by all means, reach out. And um, Lucy, I know you as well, you know, last time brought up, we need to be looking at race every meeting. So I wanted to, you know, bring this forward as one of the, um, one of the places where, you know, we've started some of the work. And I think we've heard about things that we want to do more and do better, but hopefully this is part of a, a pattern of being able to come back and really present disparities data, look at it, talk about it as a, as a group. So I just really appreciate Patricia and Eric uh, for taking that off for us. Thank you all for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. It was it was great to, to get to hear your um, your input and your experience. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Damien, I kind of just in in, in um, kind of following up on this. How I know they said that it doesn't seem like there's a a, a, a holistic kind of health equity. Kind of group necessarily that's focusing on things. Is there any plans to do that, or is there kind of how do you see health equity kind of play out, uh, or the pursuit of health equity play out um, in Alameda County system? Um, yeah, there is there there is across the entire organization. So you know, our health center is really embedded in the ambulatory um, department, but there is a committee that is. Um, that has been started by the Board of Trustees and Executive Leadership called HETI, Health, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Uh, there's, there's a large task force with five subcommittees. Um, I'm a participant on one of the subcommittees. Um, I can present more about that in an upcoming meeting. I think I'm starting to get a backlog of agenda items to present about, but that's one of the ones that we can bring forward here maybe to pick up this theme. Um, what they've done so far, what we've done so far, is um, use a tool from the American Hospital Association, um, which um, documents how hospital systems in particular are approaching um, equity, diversity, and inclusion in their programs. And Patricia has been a part of this too. I think Eric might be a part of this as well. So we've, we've done this enormous current state assessment and sort of reported it back to ourselves. And I think at this point, we're trying to, you know, the executive leadership and the board heard the, that presentation, they're consolidating that information, and then we're going to figure out how we how we move forward with um, some other recommendations. Again, that is across the entire system, and it's based on a tool that really came from hospital settings. Um, so, you know, we'll have to figure out how to adapt kind of what, what comes out of that to the needs of the population, you know, that, that we're responsible for here within the homeless health center. But I'm excited about the work. I think... Um, I think, um, you know, it has a lot of engagement from a lot of different talented folks across the organization. And so I think um, it's gaining steam, you know, it, needs, it has a long way to go, but it's, but, but it's, you know, we're moving in that direction, which is good. Um, and then is there a, um, a component that looks at staffing and kind of diversity around staffing? Yes, if anything, actually the task force is quite heavy. I think there are three of the five task forces that are focused on different areas of either workforce, staffing, or sort of different frames around who actually delivers the, the service and who leads the service. So that's 
Um, that's a very central feature, actually, of the of the particular structure that's been adopted so far. Thank you so much for the um, presentations and bringing guests. I think that's super helpful. Um, any? Yeah. Oh. I was just going to second what Damon said. In that, um, I think the heady work is. Um, probably a lot more exciting than, than what I just presented, but you know, I was just focusing on the ambulatory component, um, and I look forward to, to hearing more about that um, from him and others. I think that's super exciting and has, has more structure to it than, than anything that I've seen um, regarding equity at AHS in, in the 10 years I've been here. So I'm also super excited. Thanks, Dan. Great. Thank you. Um, if there's, I think, an interest of time, I'm going to go ahead and move forward um, to our next agenda item, and then we'll have some time at the end of the meeting if we have additional comments or questions. Um, so thank you again to our guests. Um, so next on the agenda, we have our um, report from our practice manager, Heather. Um, budget period progress. Oh, no, wait, sorry. We're doing the performance goal action plan report first. You've got it. And I, I'm, I am apologizing. I'm just looking at um, one of my memos. It still has my old title on there. I promise I'll fix it. So the little things that get away from me. I'm no longer the interim project director. I am now back to my normal self, my project management hat, which is much more comfortable. Um, so this is the 2020 Performance Goal Action Plan Report. You might remember that in um, March you approved the action plan and the action plan was designed to meet the performance goals that we selected in partnership with Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program. And as part of that action plan, we agreed that we would be reporting out to you in July of 2020. So here is your report out. I've attached as the first attachment of this section the performance goal action plan so that you are welcome to review that. Um, there were two primary goals, goal C and goal F. Goal C was a re uh, regarding patient experience and patient satisfaction, and there were um, a couple of items that we needed to complete in this regard. So one was in regards to um, doing PDSAs, it's a plan due study act model for improvement, um, specifically around patient experience and patient satisfaction. And the ambulatory AOC AQC identified um, my chart as a tool that would significantly support that. And I'm gonna let Brenda know that her screen changed. Brenda, we now see your folder again and we lost the document. I'm gonna keep moving on though. She's gonna find it. There, it's back. Um, the other thing that we were um, doing for patient experience was looking at our CG CAPS data. CG CAPS is a survey that we use within our system, and that uh, survey it asks a significant number of questions to our patients um, over the phone. And one of the suggestions we were not able via CG CAPS to look specifically at the population of people experiencing homelessness to find out their patient experience. So we talked about um, looking at different populations to see if a different subgroup would be an appropriate match um, that uh, would match the homeless population well enough to say we will use this as a proxy group. 
Um, and so in a moment, we're also going to look at that document. Um, and then on goal F, we were looking at um, patient grievances and adverse effects. So I'm going to stop for a moment because um, that one's actually pretty simple. And we're going to move to the next page. Okay, go to the next page. This is the performance goal action plan review of just the timeline that says we're reporting out in July. This is me reporting out. All right, here's our um, performance goals. So this is regarding specifically the CG CAP scores. So what we were checking um, on CG CAPs, one of the scores that we use is it's called an ambulatory top box score on rate the provider. A top box score means that the people who respond to the question responded at the top level. All right, stop scrolling. Perfect for right now. I'll tell you when to move on. Um, so the top box um, goal for 2020 for the ambulatory care is a 76.8 score, and this is a percentile. And it means that 76.8% of people who respond responded with the highest mark. So if they can respond rate on a scale of one to nine, rate your provider nine being the best, 76.8% of people responded with a nine. That's what the top box score means. And if you look at the different communities that we looked at, so we did a couple of different um, populations, the African-American over 50, um, then also black or African-American and over 50, and then the total population. You can see that there's very little change in the score, the top box score amongst those groups. Um, all right, you can scroll down a little bit for us, Brenda. Thank you so much. One of the reasons we selected these groups is because this is now a representation. These pictures are a representation, perfect, of our patients. So I looked at patients from January of 2020 till May of 2020, and we have uh, 2,263 patients experiencing homelessness that we pulled um, and looked at in our system. And then I got a, a quick demographic look at at their makeup and so this was one of the reasons that we selected african-american and then also over 50 and then we will also do want to look at our our latinx population at this point the cg cap scores could not do ethnicity they could do race but not ethnicity but we're expecting that they're going to be able to report out that score to us um, before the end of this month based on what we see above though we're not expecting that there's going to be a significant difference if we find out that we're wrong about that, of course, we will come back and let you know. But we, we're expecting that so far what we're seeing is that there's not a significant difference based on subpopulations for our CG CAP scores. Once we look into the details of CG CAPs, there certainly are a lot of other areas, not just rate your provider on one to nine, but it'll talk about, you know, your your. Um, the front office staff, whether you were treated with respect by your front office staff, and there, there's an opportunity also for patients to provide comments. So we do get a lot of feedback from patients that go beyond that just rate your provider one to nine. But we start with that to determine, is it appropriate for us to use the whole population of ambulatory care to represent also the views of people experiencing homelessness within our system? Can we look at this score and know that it's, it's probably gonna be close to our subpopulation? So that's what we're looking at here. You want to move on to the next slide? One of the other action items um, is regarding the patient experience survey that's specifically for mobile health clinic. Um, and this was developed by the Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless um, Consumer Advisory Board. So people experiencing homelessness um, that they have in a group that gives them feedback and they help to develop the survey. Um, this survey does leave space 
for uh, a question that mobile would develop specifically and we wanted to um, give you guys a chance to review the survey and also provide any input if there were specific things that you think would be helpful in mobile clinic we're also going to work with our mobile clinic team to determine if there are any questions that they have that they want to add on to the survey um, on the second page of the survey question number 12 i believe it is is just open in, or 11 sorry question number 11 is for us and ready to design if we want to customize we're not required to but it is an option so if in review of the survey you see something you wanted to add we're happy to take your feedback back to the team can you scroll up to the previous page there's just one question that It almost seems everything else looks good. For question four, it almost seems like it's two separate questions. Did you feel like your provider listened to you? Did you feel like your provider understood your concerns? Listening doesn't mean that they feel understood, that their concerns were understood. So I would almost break those up into two different questions. Other than that, the survey is okay. Thanks for the feedback. You're welcome. All right, hearing no other feedback, I'm going to move on to the next set. Um, again, in the interest of time, and there's a lot to do today. Um, so the other part is about patient risk um, and patient relations. So, um, and this is goal F. So goal F, uh, we were looking at how do we pull information specifically for, again, the subpopulation of people experiencing homelessness out of our system that reports um, risk events and relations events and so we developed the report and we are now able to pull the information specific to our patients experiencing homelessness and we do this by running the report with the medical record numbers medical record numbers and then doing a reverse lookup pulling those medical record numbers out that we already have identified as people experiencing homelessness um, as you can see there are two different types of events there's a patient relations event and there's a patient risk event and a patient relations event is a complaint or a grievance so somebody says I'm unhappy about something that's happened and a patient risk event is an event that may have the capacity to cause harm to a person and then there are different levels of risk that are categorized within patient risk and you can see them listed below um, they go I think A through I and just are different levels of potential harm to the patient or their actual harm to the patient. If you look above, you can see that for the quarter, so this is a quarterly a quarter report, so that's January 1st through March 31st, our organization within our, our system had 60 patient relations events or 60 complaints now what we've done also is we're describing the in scope and then homeless in scope so remember the scope for us is ambulatory care and within ambulatory care it's even um, a little bit stricter than that there are some things that fall outside of that but for the most part we're going to talk about it and you're going to think of it as ambulatory care everything that might happen at eastmont wellness center at hayward wellness center at newark wellness center and at um, the highland clinics, primary care and specialty clinics, including urgent care and mobile clinic. Those are all in scope. Um, also in our scope is the dental clinic, right? So that's in scope. So within the first quarter, within the scope, 
there were five complaints. And then from there, people experiencing homelessness that are in that scope, there was one. And then same with the patient risk, you can see the organization total, 1,726 events. Um, 28 of those were in scope. Those are things that happened with an ambulatory care, and one that happened with a patient who was identified as experiencing homelessness. Um, so I did review both of these specific cases. Um, neither of these cases caused harm to the patient, so these would be, um, uh, I think, level for the patient risk, it was a level B, and the event occurred that um, actually, it might have been a C. It, it reached the patient but did not ca cause patient harm. So in the example of the risk event, it was a situation where um, uh, the um, medical assistant had a patient chart open that was not the correct patient chart and so administered the incorrect immunization to the patient, which required the patient to have to come back and get the correct immunization. But the immunization that the patient received was not a harmful, did not cause harm to that patient and was not um, a negative outcome for that patient. It just wasn't the one that had been ordered for that day. Um, the patient relations event, um, Similarly, I think it was, it was twins. It was a brother and sister going to the lab with their parents, and both of the, I think both of the patients were due to get some labs run, and they switched the labels on the two containers. So it didn't cause the patient harm, except that the patient had to come back and get the labs drawn again because they had, they, had they had swapped them, the sibling specimens. So that's an example of some of the things that can happen within our system. And in this case, which happened to the patients that are specifically within our scope. Do you wanna scroll down just a little bit for us? At the bottom of the page. Um, and so the expectation is that each month, or not each month, each quarter, um, I'll be pulling this report, reviewing the report, and providing you something very similar to this, which tells you how many total events happened within our system, how many of them were, th were within scope, and then how many of them happened to people experiencing homelessness. We'll review what kind of situations have occurred and then give you an update on that. And that concludes that report. Did you guys have any questions or just wanted to talk about anything? Um, for, for the risk uh, information, I'm sorry, can you, where did that information come from? Is that self, like patient reported or is that um, like a provider reported or like who, where did that number come from? This, so we have um, a system, um, it's called the um, MIDAS, and that's where all of the risk and relations events are entered by employees uh, regarding the occurrence. So for example, if a patient complains to an employee, that event is put into the system. So risk could be patient reported or could be um, staff reported. So a staff identifies, I made this error, that could have caused this patient harm. They enter it into MIDAS and it's reviewed. Um, a patient uh, complaint could also come through their insurer. So if it's an Alameda Alliance patient, they call Alameda Alliance. They say, I'm upset with what happened. Alameda Alliance calls Alameda Health System. We enter it into the MIDAS report then as well. And so it gets entered by our patient relations um, department um, because those are the folks who usually take the call. Um, and then the 
the situation gets worked on from there. And there are usually some act action items related to the events, you know, for example, um, retraining and review in some cases if errors are made, um, or working with the, with the patient to understand their complaint and, and what happened to them to make it better. Depends on the situation. Okay, um, so we can go on. Um, okay, Lucia, to go on to the next item? Uh, yes, please. All right, so the budget period progress report. So um, there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to reading my memo because I think that's the easiest way. Um, maybe you won't read word for word, but, but this is where things can get a little complicated. Um, so just a reminder, um, we have, our scope and our budget, which is our scope, and our scope is very large, and this is where we talk about the whole scope, the, the whole 5,000 set of patients that we see for 20,000 encounters per year. That's what this budget period progress report is about. Um, when I get to the next item, I'm gonna be talking very clearly about a, a project or our program which is grant funded so we have these large budgets which is for the whole scope and then we have also these small budgets which are for the program the grant dollars a grant budget versus a kind of the whole project or the whole scope budget the budget period progress report is about that whole budget that budget that gets um, sent to HRSA annually to tell them what's happening with our health center so since our grant is not due for renewal this year, because it's on a three-year cycle, we submit something called a BPR, or the Budget Period Progress Report. Um, our funding continues. There's not going to be a change in our funding during our program period. In some cases, there's supplemental funding, for example, this year, especially because of COVID. But in general, um, you're on a, a cycle, a three-year cycle, where the budget is reasonably fixed. Um, at least for the grant dollars that are provided to your grant. We are not the grantee. Remember, we're the subrecipient. So Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program is the recipient. We're a subrecipient. So Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program will submit the BPR and they use our BPR to inform their BPR and theirs will then go to HRSA. Ours will not go to HRSA in the state that we provide it to them. Um, it, it gets, it gets, um, it rolls up into theirs. And so we give them information to add into their BPR. The whole BPR packet is a total of seven tabs. We are not gonna review all seven tabs today, partially because uh, some of them include things like just the instructions or contact information. Um, I don't think information that you um, necessarily need to review. And um, in some cases also, it's information that's already readily available in these three forms that I provide to you. So they're just sometimes summarized in different ways um, for HRSA. And so they're broken down different ways. However, the three forms that I'm giving you are complete information and show you the complete picture of what's happening. Um, this doesn't require um, an approval from you. It's a review so that you know what's going on. And, and really this budget, this BPR is about um, 20, year 21. So January 1st, 2021 through December 31st, 2021. 
Um, the HRSA budget is on a calendar year cycle. Remember Alameda Health Systems on a fiscal year cycle. And so sometimes there are these, um, we have different timing. So the budget for Alameda Health System is July 1st through June 31st, but the budget for HRSA and all of our reports to HRSA are for a calendar year, January 1st through December 31st. All right, how are we doing so far, good? Okay, no hands are raised, so we're gonna move on. Next sheet. Okay, so this shows a summary of the budget. It shows the grant funds of $621,788 in the first column. In the second column, you see the additional funds from the county that they provided to us, the 163,388. And that gives us our total in relationship to the county. If you look below, you see our administration, medical staff, dental staff, et cetera. This is, again, um, we're gonna look at another sheet that shows us how many staff are represented in these areas. And remember, the first column is representing the grant funds, kind of the small budget. And the second column is showing the larger budget, the whole health center, the, the whole scope, what it costs to support a homeless health center. So you can see, for example, that the grant funding that were provided by the federal government for personnel is roughly $469,953, but the amount that it costs to provide the service to people experiencing homelessness within our health center is roughly $8 million, plus the fourth 69, equaling 8.7. Are you guys following along? Fantastic, I see nodding heads. Let's scroll down a little bit more. We're gonna go over the whole thing um, at the end also. I think if we do a overview or a quick glance, um, we can also review at the end. There are other areas that we show costs. Those are benefits. Keep going, that's all right. Some training, some equipment some supplies, and here we're typically pulling um, specifically for our grant and not acknowledging the whole health center resources quite as significantly until we get down to the other section where we have additional funds from our system that we account for to show, and a up, 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 slow down. All right, so that we wanna look at the bottom line there. So that the, right there, you're good. Um, we've got the, the 621 from the federal funding, the 11.3 that's coming from non-federal funding sources, and for the total cost of 11.9 million for the whole health center. All right, we'll keep going, scrolling again. This now shows um, the FTEs. So remember there's the grant funded part and the other ones that we um, account for in the non-grant funding. In the case of a project director, CEO, um, that does represent both um, Dr. Francis and Delvecchio Finley. So there's, there's both of them are combined in that line. So that's why you see a 0.5 up there. Um, and you can look at the other staff. These are portions of the whole Alameda Health System that are 
accounted for by the Homeless Health Center. Can you scroll down a little bit for us? And in on this idea of maintaining the effort, this number of providers um, and staff that we are accounting for, can you go a little bit farther? In this chart is a maintenance of effort from what we submitted to HRSA for the calendar year ending 2019. So we're showing the cost as the same as 2019. Scroll down a little bit further in the number of staff that we're providing. And this is typically the methodology we use for this document. So the 62, sorry, you went a little too far. This is six, can go up a little bit more. So much fun when you don't have control of your own screen. Um, 62 staff plus the five that are funded directly by the grant. You scroll up just a little bit onto the page above, not the top of the page above, but to the bottom of the page above. Perfect. That's good. So there you can see the total number of staff, 62.02 plus the 5.35 provided by grant funding. You guys following along all right? I'm going to see some nodding heads again. Excellent. Scroll. You can go down to the next page now. Thank you so much. We've done something differently here on the, on the revenue side. So we maintained the cost that we saw in 2019 for the Homeless Health Center, but we've decreased the revenue. And this is because we're seeing a decrease in the number of patients that we've seen since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And we're at a roughly 10 to 12% um, decrease in encounters. And so we're showing at the top 12% decrease in encounters that we're projecting that we're using for our 2021 our 21 budget. I've also given you on the right hand side a comparison. So you can see the in the 2019 column, this is what we showed to HRSA at the end of, ca of calendar year 2019. Sorry, I'm getting the, the years get very confused. So we submitted to HRSA in 2019 this amount of income. You can see what we submitted to them in 2018 as our income, and you can see what we submitted to them for a projection for 2020 when we submitted for our last um, grant renewal. So the projected 2020 is what we gave them in our grant renewal last year. And the projection was significantly higher than 2019 and did not certainly account for the, the decrease the 12% decrease in visits that we're seeing in comparison to 2019. So even though the costs stayed the same and our revenue went down, we had to find a place where we could put in additional revenue. And this is the lower half of the chart, rows 7 through 14. And the place I was, I'm going to say the place I was permitted to put in this extra revenue that would need to be found to support the budget was in local government. So you see a significant de uh, difference in what happened in 2019, the $2 million in local government funds that are accounted for in our homeless health center. And you see that that's up to 5.2 million in our projected income need to cover the costs of the program if our 
projections maintain this way, that we have the same costs but a decrease in our revenue because we're not able to bill for services when we have fewer visits. And we're seeing this because of increased demand due to, or this is projected because of the increased demand for services related to COVID-19, but not being paid for covering those services. No. Yeah, it's it's not that it's a decrease in demand. We have had a decrease in demand because remember with the COVID pandemic, we closed several service lines. We had less utilization. So yeah, not necessarily a decrease in demand, but yes, less utilization. People are not coming to clinic. Um, and in some cases, service lines closed temporarily. Um, Dental would be a, a an example of that, right? So we're in the process of um, restoration, where the services are opening back up and people are coming into clinic more. Um, we were able to launch phone visits that helped significantly. And even with the launch of phone phone visits and, and attempting to maintain as many of our services as possible, there's still a decrease in total utilization. So if the services aren't utilized, we don't bill for them, therefore we don't get paid for them, but we're maintaining the same, the same staffing. Right. Thanks for asking the clarifying question. Um, this would be um, the kinds of documents that we'll be asking you regularly to review. Um, and so I'm hoping that by going over these also, you're getting a comfort level with them um, this is certainly a document that we have to review pretty much every year, and we're looking at the budget um, at least twice a year. So please feel free to ask questions or make sure that you're comfortable with it. Don't hesitate. So for the projected income uh, in local government, is that something that we know will be coming or has been allocated for, or is that a, a kind of a, a hope that, or that's pretty much the only place it can come from? So there are COVID relief funds that come to Alameda Health System um, because we are a Medi-Cal and Medicare provider, and there are also the COVID relief funds that went directly to the grantee Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program. And so some of those are coming in, and that may be the place where, where that is showing, right? So um, we certainly, you know, in our next item, we're gonna talk about um, a supplemental funding of $150,000, for example, and that's not spelled out here in this budget, but it would be, for example, showing up on this on in our budget at some point but it's not i was i was told not to put it in yet um so we're not showing it as as in our budget yet but it is additional one hundred fifty thousand dollar income that will be coming um so I guess what um, the main the main point of of reviewing this also with you aside from the requirement is that 
we've got the same amount of expenses, we have a decrease in our overall income, we have relief funding coming to our system in various ways. We are both a health center and also a small program. So we have those two dynamics happening. Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless program is sometimes um, very focused on us being a program, a grant funded program. And so sometimes is looking very specific about what can I get from these grant dollars we also need to balance that with what the needs are of our health center, which is this larger thing that is going through a large period of stress by not being able to bill for the services that we would typically provide. And so we need, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to express and explain how that works and how that dynamic sometimes comes into play, um, especially when we're working with the county. Um, so as an example, when the relief dollars were sent to the county and we said how much of those relief dollars are coming to Alameda Health System, there's not necessarily an assumption by Alameda County Health Care for the Homeless Program that any of them would. Um, so we're, we're working on that dynamic. You guys helped with the letter that went to them recently on how do you figure out what to do with supplemental funds when they come into the system and how they're allocated and including us as their partner to have that discussion. Um, but they're not necessarily always seeing the, the big health center um, as the responsibility so much as the grant and what they can do specifically with grant dollars. And it's just a different perspective that we sometimes have and where there can sometimes be some conflict between our agencies. And I say conflict with a little c, a difference in opinion on how to best leverage um, the funds that are coming in. I'm going to ask Damon, help. Yeah, just to flesh that out a little bit more, so um, it largely has to do with differences in how the systems around our programs are administered. So if relief dollars come to Alameda County that are dedicated toward the federally funded Healthcare for the Homeless program, the leadership of that program um, has control of those dollars. That's a real budget for them. Um, when the CARES Act funding comes to Alameda Health System, you know, there's a cost center that Heather and I manage administratively, and then we report to you all, and we're also responsible for bringing back your guidance to the system as to what we should be spending on in order to, in order to provide for the homeless health center. But Heather and I are not administratively responsible for the cost center for that entire budget. And so, um, you know, in the actual negotiations about what happens with grant dollars that are going to the county that could be passed through to the largest part of their health center, they're considering things like, well, if we give you this money, it'll be part of patching up an enormous funding gap that is going to be enormous whether we patch it up or not. If we give that money to a tiny um, community-based organization in the community, um, we could, you know, hire a whole staff member with that money. Um, so those are the kinds of decisions that our counterparts are making that I used to make when I was in healthcare for the homeless and that our counterparts are making, right? And they have to figure out in what sense does it make sense to help the health center as a whole and in what sense does it make sense to, you know, maximize this particular use of dollars that's coming in at this particular moment. And I think that's the tension that, that Heather describes and I think, you know, 
our CFO is obviously going to see that very differently than someone who's responsible for contracting for community-based or with community-based organizations for services. And I think, um, you know, we're, we try to figure out what's the best way through as a health center. What do we think is best coming from the perspective that we have at Alameda Health System? Um, but that's the place where there's, you know, quite legitimate differences of opinion often about how, how we should be thinking about that type of funding. I'd probably argue with myself if I were in the other role, you know. That's why he's, I'm glad he's on our team. Both seem pretty legitimate these ways to, to allocate the funding. Yeah. So since this is not an, again, this is not an action item, um, but the next item is an action item. Um, do you guys feel comfortable moving on to the next document? Was there more that you wanted to discuss on this one? All right, I think we're going to move on. And now we're getting to an action item. Okay, fantastic. Um, so this is the supplemental funding expenditures. So this is, I'm going to say, our budget with our little b um, for the program. They're direct dollars that come into our. Hi, this is Alex. Before yeah. the, because this is. Oh, uh, yeah, thank item, you. The motion is to be made. Thanks. And then, and then we can open it up for discussion. This is why I need Alex. Alex, get us in order. Oh, well, no, that will be the chair. <laughs> um, can we uh, have a motion to um, vote on the supplemental funding expenditures? To approve, so it will be a motion approve. to approve. Yeah. <laughs> I make a motion that we approve supplemental funding expenditures. Is that what you're asking for? Yes, please. Can I get a second? I, I second that. Okay, we may open it for discussion now. Thank you. All right, thank you so much. Um, so, um, can you scroll down just a little bit for us there, Brenda? So I described a little bit um, in our earlier section about the supplemental funding, that this is um, CARES supplemental funding, which is intended to provide relief um, to in, include maintaining or increasing health center capacity and staffing levels during this public health emergency. Um, so if you look on the next sheet, um, this is uh, the budget. So first you see the in the federal column, this is the money that was already granted to Alameda Health System that you approved from Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program. You see in the county um, column, that's the additional funding the county provided to help support the medical director position here. Um, but it's not federal funding, it's other county funding. And then you see the third column is the supplemental funding um, for the total of $150,000. At the top, there are significant resources that we have allocated to staffing, and this is to leverage additional staff to serve patients experiencing homelessness. Um, benefits are reasonably standard to add on with any of the staffing. Some projects that we're working on specifically are the build of the homeless registry. This is going to support both the monitoring of patients experiencing homelessness who are COVID positive and um, also 
to monitor patients experiencing homelessness within our system with the homeless registry. It will allow us to build the dashboards to monitor um, and review outcomes for those patients. And then additional funding, the $10,000 for funding that's specifically for COVID-19 testing. If you scroll down just a little bit more, um, you can see the totals. There are some indirect expenses also allocated. Generally, um, they're not to exceed 10% of any grant. Um, this is below 10% of the grant um, for indirect expenses. Indirect expenses can include um, multiple things, including um, facilities and infrastructure that aren't otherwise accounted for and some of the line items. The total amount then you can see um, to the right would be um, the subrecipient agreement would be amended to, for a total amount of $935,176. So that would be the new grant amount from the county. So this will go towards uh, trying to stop the or uh, cover the difference in funding or income versus expenses that, that we're going to see for this year. Correct. Some of these things are specifically intended to do that, especially around the staffing. Um, and also and just I a reminder that this budget goes through on December 31st of 2020. So all of these funds would be expended by December 31st. And I'm not super great with with the money, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be saying that if it's getting reported, um, but I would like to know how much further do we need to go in, in fully covering the gap. I know we talked about it just before, but we can talk about that a little bit more in terms of how much more funding do we need to actually fully cover the gap between expenses and income for, for this year. Or projected. I mean, going back to the other one, it's three point five million large, right? Yeah. The seven versus the 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 five versus the two. That's what we're seeing. So Correct. it really doesn't. We need to be looking for uh, a much greater source of funding to to cover that gap. Then. And I think the gap is the way to think about the gap is that it is a it's a virtual budget that's a representation of what's happening with the with the entire ambulatory budget. So our patients um, that are people experiencing homelessness or have experienced homelessness are a portion of ambulatory. That gap is not necessarily a real gap that falls to me and Heather to manage inside of the programmatic dollars that we're spending, um, but it is a gap that falls across. The ambulatory care system, and for us to manage as a you know as a board around what's happening to people experiencing homelessness, and I think um, our broader system is trying to cover a much larger gap than that. It's clear from the data that we have access to, and we need to participate in those strategies for covering that larger gap. And that's part of the connection to presenting around the county budget is our board of trustees has conversations with the board of supervisors about covering these gaps. Um, our board of trustees and our executive leadership have conversations about what do we need to advocate for at a state level. And I think as, um, as a, a board that's 
jointly responsible for for managing the um, the the overall effectiveness of our health center. We have responsibility to participate in those processes with those other groups that that uh, we share responsibility with for figuring out how this is resolved. Um, it doesn't necessarily show up as a gap that you know Heather and I can say we need to hire this one staff member or two staff members here or there. It's, it's more of a it, it's more of a virtual gap that we have to think about what's our role in sort of influencing the broader system or structure. I don't know if that makes sense. It's very complicated, as Heather said. <laughs> yeah, I think this is where the limits it tests the limits of my understanding. <laughs> Yeah, I think if you know the participants, what's been helpful is thinking about it as a as a portion of the whole ambulatory budget, and so we're we're looking at what's happening to ambulatory and how and the fallout of that for the budget that goes the virtual budget that goes for people experiencing homelessness. I, I don't think we should be managing a specific budget, right? People are homeless for a month or two at a time, and we want to be part of that whole ambulatory care system. So I think about it more as like, what's ambulatory doing about this? How can we help them? And you've already directed me, for example, to talk about what other counties are doing around their budget. That's a, that, I think that's a useful direction. Um, you know, thank you <laughs> as a staff member for giving a useful direction around things we might do around that gap. So just to connect that prior conversation to this to this discussion. I think I'm just gonna I'm just gonna repeat some of what Damon said to um, help this idea that it is a virtual gap it's not a, it's not a real gap um, the it's it's a it's a difference in the amount that we would need to find funding within our system but we see it in our system in other places and it's the whole system budget that the board of trustees is going to be reviewing um, in 10 days will show where the where where I'll call it the the actual gap um, they'll be able to illuminate the actual gap a lot better because remember our budget is really a part of a part of a part. Um, it's not that there's a cost center that shows specifically this much money coming in and this much money going out. We are allocating patients from 30 different cost centers and saying, you know, 10 patients from this cost center, so we need to take 10% of that cost center and show an estimated cost. I mean, it's very much an estimation. And so while we're showing you um, a budget that shows how it's going to need to be covered, it's going to need to be covered by these external funds. We don't know yet what those funds will be, but that's what it will take to cover what we think is representative of people experiencing homelessness. And, in, and, and it's really the Alameda Health System budget that will show like where there are actually no dollars coming in and, and how many how much they need to to bring in to cover um, the gap of expenses for the whole system and then we would probably feel a portion of that but there's nothing that will say specifically in any budget in the future that the county then provided 3.5 million to cover people experiencing homelessness like that that's it is very virtual it's it's a concept not necessarily a uh, something that you can follow in the ledgers Is that helpful? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think I have a question about what that would kind of how that would manifest itself uh, at you know and in the system. Um, is there like would would that be like if if we're not able to meet that 
gap as a system does that mean like there's like where i guess that's part is part of the budget where things get cut or how how the money that is there gets allocated um to yeah, I, I guess I'm just like, how how would we or patients feel feel that manifested in their healthcare? Um, if that makes sense. If it's not if it's not specifically with healthcare for the homeless kind of services specifically to the ones that we you know we're looking at, it's more of a system, a broad system kind of deficiency. Right. Like, I think this is. I think this is where Damon's Damon's super helpful in, in helping me understand it. It's where possibly our board of trustees, when they identify that they're that the funding isn't there, that how do they advocate both with the county and the state to identify that our system can't survive the way it is with the amount of funding that's coming in, and what do we do to close that gap? Um, certainly, there's federal funds that are coming in, so 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 I don't want to say that it's that it's all dire. There's there are other funds that are coming in for COVID relief to, into our system. They're not specifically allocated to the healthcare for the homeless, but they're making up some of that gap. And so there are meetings that show how much is coming in from these different places as we project the gap. We project that there will be a gap this wide, how much money is going to be coming in from the federal government to help um, to help fill that gap. Um, and so they are looking at that. Um, and then, then, then our system also looks at how do we make changes and maintain services and where can we afford to make changes within our system and maintain services for patients. And those are the difficult questions that our board of trustees and our leadership is working with right now. And I think that that's gonna be a lot of the discussion on the 24th. Um, the great advantage of the 24th probably is that it's a virtual meeting and so easy to attend from afar. Um, but we could certainly, I think we will all learn more about it on the 24th. We don't necessarily have the answers for you yet either. Yeah, what I would, what I would say is, you know, the our, budget is virtual, the gap is real. Um, the gap is real for the entire system and so has to be closed by, you know, getting more money in or spending less money or kicking the can down the road and getting loans or those kinds of things. Um, I think the thing that it falls on us as the homeless health center to attend to is where and how might those impacts disproportionately affect people experiencing homelessness? And I think um, our population in particular is served by many, many small grants, not just ours, but there are other sort of special programs or things on the side that are created to like make the system work better. So care management programs or, um, you know, some of the programs that are offered in the emergency room, for example, to bridge people to medically assisted treatment. And so I think um, we have a lot more sort of little pots of grant dollars or um, special programs through Medicaid that benefit people experiencing homelessness and a lot more to pay attention to around some of those little programs to see what happens to them inside of these larger budget processes. And there are some there are some moments, and I don't know which one this is, where those types of programs are more effective and some moments where those types of programs are less effective. And I think that's that's something that I'll you know we'll we'll continue to be paying attention to, and then try to report to you all to see is 
there, you know, how are you saying that people, patients experiencing homelessness are affected in a different way than maybe the broader ambulatory population is based on the budget? Um, and try to figure out how we can, you know, do our best to explain that and then figure out what are the things we could do to, you know, to give guidance to the rest of the system to say, we, we, we think that this needs to be thought about in this way in order to make sure the homeless health center, you know, integrity is, is, is held. Okay, so we're going to move forward and um, call a vote. So all in favor of approving um, this. One second, I'm going to pull it up real quick. That will be approving the supplemental funding expenditures. Yes. Okay. So all in favor of approving the supplemental funding expenditures, say aye. 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 Any opposed? Okay, so the motion is approved. Um, it looks like we'll be able to do some infrastructure building because of the supplemental funding, which that's really great. Is it going to be to, to be able to do counting of homeless, um, people experiencing homelessness uh, through a telehealth or providing them service through a telehealth service? Um, I think that's an epic work, right? This is where I'm pausing only because I feel like you guys just had a vote, so the discussion's closed. Oh. And so I think this is where um, Alexander will say, hey, we already talked about it. You didn't get your question in on time. But don't yeah, worry. I, I'm sorry. I, it just, uh, I, just, I looked at it just now. I, I'm sorry. It's totally OK. okay. But I'll, rem I'll remember to bring it up um, in my next report for you'll hear more about it for sure. Um, and then Heather, you have a final report out. Yeah, so we have the standard um, monthly program report here for you today. Um, I'll be quick and easy because I know we're already at 745 and I really appreciate you all hanging in there for this long meeting tonight. Um, we have our next, you know, our monitoring visits had been delayed because of COVID. So we have one coming up in August. Um, it is going to be focusing on finance. Um, I wanted to give you a little status update because we're kind of at our mid-year point or in our case also end of a fiscal year. So you'll see that um, I've provided both the clinical encounters for June, which are 66. It's a little, it's, it's going down. Um, Previous months was much higher, but previous months also represented a lot of COVID testing. 
um, and and our mobile health unit is not doing the COVID testing right now, which is why you have 66 clinical encounters. You can see that for fiscal year 2020, we had 947 encounters, which was 96% of what was budgeted for visits for our system. So Alameda Health System, um, budgets a certain number of visits and this is about fiscal sustainability as well how many visits they think that we'll have based on our staffing based on uh, utilization prior and based on um, some of our projections and so we had projected 988 visits um, and we got to 947 which I think given COVID is um, reasonable very reasonable um, also in comparison to fiscal year 2019 where we had 659 encounters you'll see that we had um, a 144% increase over our 2019 encounters, so it shows a lot of growth for our team. Um, we also are counting now our enabling services, which are those services provided by our community health outreach worker. One of the other things that we're looking at, um, so this is again specifically this, the, the smaller P program, just our mobile health, um, we have results-based accountability objectives. And for calendar year, these are objectives that are based on calendar year. We're projected to have 930 unduplicated patients. And this is about helping to find patients and connect them to care. And at our half year mark, we're at 462, which is 99% um, of our mid-year target. So if the idea is we see half of them in the first half of the year and half of them in the second half of the year, then we're looking pretty good as far as that's concerned. Um, we're continuing to work, I, I guess, suppose this is a place where I can throw in, we're working really hard on, on uh, securing our data and you'll hear more about the registry in this quality section in future meetings. If you scroll down a little bit more um, in our leadership and advocacy, we're working hard on, on just communicating a lot about people experiencing homelessness as it relates to COVID in our in our, we have um, weekly and monthly updates within ambulatory. And I think that, again, there is a lot of um, interest amongst our colleagues um, about how the people experiencing homelessness are faring in this pandemic. So um, I think that that interest, it's, it's unfortunate that we have the pandemic. I think the interest um, for our patients experiencing homelessness will develop into strong systems and infrastructure that will help us to care for people experiencing homelessness in the future. So, so in that case, it's a benefit. The end. <laughs> Great, thank you. Um, so now we're going to move to, um, I think Neha has her hand up. Oh, sorry. Hi, Neha. Hey, or, sorry. Uh, it's not a point of discussion, but I just wanted to make a request that the numbers that we see every month, so the mobile health clinic patient encounters, um, and the enabling encounters, is it possible for us to see them? In a table format, so we see them for Jenny, February, March, etc., and then we're able to see the the trend uh, as the year progresses. If, if that's not uh, too that, challenging to put together, that is not too much to ask. No problem. Great, thanks. Any final comments, questions? 
we have any public comment? Any co-applicant board member comments? Okay, folks, thank you for being here tonight. We're gonna adjourn this meeting at 7.46 and we will, or 7.40, wait, is that the time? 749. <laughs> 749. Um, and we will see you next month. Thank you. Heather, can you stay for 25 seconds? Yeah, I can stay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you.